so let's just jump into this right now. One of the things that I have been uh, kind of hammering on is some of these ideas that I think are a little bit out of balance within the spiritual communities. And so I've kind of <clears throat> gone the other direction in terms of being contrarian to some of the things that are taught, like this idea of, uh, that we can experience total oneness, um, the idea that we should surrender our sense of self, the right-hand path, which so fascinating to me, just to give you a review, two different approaches to spirituality, one called the right-hand path and one called the left-hand path. And the right-hand path being primarily concerned with community, but also it's this idea of uh, the day, the light, uh, being in the light. We want to be all love and light. We want to eradicate or dominate what we call the lower nature or the darker nature or those parts of us that scare us or those parts of us that are left um, without uh, control, I guess. It's not really the word I want to use, but without um, conscious choice. Let's look at it that way. Uh, if we just let our dark side just run wild, the damage that that can do to others, the damage that can do to ourselves, the damage that can do to the community. And so we're well aware of sort of this night side of us. So I want you to think about the sun and the moon as two different paths to the heaven, the sun and the moon and the stars. So the sun during the day, the right-hand path is we want to be all light. We want to be all love. And then also the path to ascension passes through the sun or passes through the fire. And so the idea is, is that you ascend to the heavens where the gods are, where God is, you have to pass through the gateway of the sun. And when you pass through the gateway of the sun, you're entirely burnt up. And so it's this idea that we've looked at that's influenced by Eastern philosophies that we want to completely lose ourselves into this experience of oneness. That's the right-hand path. The left-hand path represented by the moon and the stars um, if you think about each individual star uh, shining as its own sun, then rather than passing through the sun and being burnt up, being consumed, losing your ego, losing your sense of identity, the left-hand path is more this idea that you become a star that has a trajectory, that has a path. And finding that trajectory, finding that path, and doing your true will and letting your light shine. So it's a strengthening of the ego, really. It's a strengthening of the sense of self. And the path and the goal is to do your true will, which is the divine will, because you have the divine spark within you. That's the philosophy of the left-hand path. Whereas the right-hand path is I want to lose my will completely and be consumed with the will of another, in this case, with the will of God. And that's becoming <clears throat> godlike in the sense with our assumptions and presuppositions that God is all light, if that makes sense. And so one of the things that comes up <clears throat> is this idea of being in the present moment. And Eckhart Tolle has written a best-selling book that still seems to be a bestseller called The Power of Now. Now, I'm not sure exactly when the book came out. I know I came across it in 2003 and started studying it and started applying the principles and stuff that were there and spent <clears throat> quite a bit of time teaching on it in the church and found great benefit from it. So I've been kind of engaging with the power of now sort of material and present moment material, present moment awareness, presence, ego, those kinds of concepts. You are not your mind. You are not your body. You are not what Eckhart Tolle calls your pain body for almost 20 years. <laughs> and so I think I've learned a little bit through application of it and things like that. So let's just, so I want to balance it out by talking about the benefit of the power of now or the benefit of present moment awareness or really what we call in therapeutic circles mindfulness. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit today. Um, <clears throat> so here's the basic concepts. The basic concepts, and it seems self-evident, the past is over. The past does not exist. Um, the past is over. And, in fact, the only place the past exists is the record of the past that we tame within our minds. That's the only place it exists. It's over and done with, but we can remember it. We can have um, flashbacks to it. We can have triggers where our mind re remembers something subconsciously from the past. Something in the present seems similar to it, and we trigger on that emotionally. But at the end of the day, 
in physical reality, at least the way we perceive it, the past is gone. The past doesn't exist. But our minds like to go back there. Now, in the same way that the past doesn't exist, the future also has yet to be shaped. We have yet to know. We don't know what's going to happen today. We don't know what good things or tragic things are going to occur or happen in our lives. And so we only have the ability to fantasize about the future. To And by fantasize, I just mean to daydream about it, to think about it, to imagine it. But at the end of the day, that's also just a product of the mind. That's just something I'm doing. I'm projecting a future moment, thinking about what it might be like. <clears throat> and, of course, I can't account for all of the factors that I can't see or that I can't control. I think there's a, a proverb either in Judaism or in Buddhism that life and time is like rowing the boat on a river, going downstream with the river, rowing your boat backwards. That's a really good illustration because we can't see what's coming. We can only see what has been. We can try to anticipate what's coming by thinking about the future. And so our mind becomes preoccupied. And this is uh, Eckhart Tolle's whole concept, is that our mind becomes preoccupied with the past and with the future. And when we identify with the mind, we lose the present moment because we're either identifying with the past that doesn't exist because it's over, or we're identifying with the fantasy of the future, the future that has not yet happened. And so the idea behind the book is to try to bring ourselves into the present moment by disidentifying with our minds, by realizing that we are not our minds. Our minds are just, it's just a program that runs within us. And the way he tells us that we do this is by observing the mind, observing the mechanisms and the functions of the mind, being grounded within our bodies. And when we become grounded within our bodies, we also become more present to our emotions or what he calls the pain body. And just being aware of the pain body as it's operating, be aware of our emotions as they're triggering and as they're happening, but not getting overly identified with them. So you can think, to use the illustration of the river again, you can think of someone who's in present moment awareness as standing in the river, and there's all these logs and debris that's floating by, and all of those logs and debris and maybe even boats that are floating by represent our thoughts and our feelings. And what we want to try to do in mindfulness and in practicing the present moment is become like that person standing in the river, and we're just watching uh Thoughts go by, we're watching imaginations go by, we're watching, uh, we're paying attention to feelings that we're seeing in our body, but realizing that they are not permanent, that they, that they move like a river. And so it's this whole idea in meditation to understand that nothing about our minds, the function of our minds, the thoughts that we're having, the things that we're saying to ourselves, none of that is actually permanent. Uh, I can go from thinking about, um, my dogs <laughs> and how much I love them. Uh, <laughs> hint of sarcasm there. Uh, no, I love my dogs. Uh, but you know, we can go about thinking about our dogs and taking our dog for a walk and how much we love our dog and how our dog was when it was a puppy. And then we can start thinking about the football game. Uh, we can start thinking about the football game and then we can start thinking about our week at work or we can start reflecting on what happened last week at work, or we can start reflecting on decisions that we made 10, 20 years ago and think, oh, how my life would have been different. But then we're going to switch again. And so the idea is that this, that your mind is just coming in waves. uh, And it's very, very uh, fluid. It's never the same. It's never permanent. And, same thing with our emotions. Our emotions will, will rise up. We may feel good because something really good happened and we'll ride that wave of good feeling, but eventually it, you know, crashes into the, if you want to think about it like waves hitting the beach, eventually it crashes into the beach and here comes another wave. Sometimes the waters emotionally are more still for us and then sometimes something happens that gets them stirred up. But the point is, is that none of this is permanent. And so the real powerful concept behind this concept of present moment awareness and presence and the power of now is that we understand that nothing in our experience is permanent except for our awareness. 
the fact that we are, the fact that we are a point of consciousness and we're experiencing all these things. So whatever's in our external environment does not have permanence. Um, everything that we have, everything that we experience will really pass away and fade away. We'll eventually die and no longer have this physical experience as Aaron Tomlinson living in this time period or as Ben Urban or Don Tripp or whoever you are that's watching this living in this life, right? Eventually that's all going to end. And so the realization that the only thing that's permanent within us is our awareness. If there is life after death, which I believe there is, but um, <clears throat> not everybody's there. Um, but whatever we take after with us after this body dies is going to be that same awareness that has been with us. And so the idea is to really kind of begin to experience eternity within ourselves by allowing for our awareness to be without jumping on one of these boats or grabbing onto one of these logs and over identifying with our thoughts and over identifying with our feelings. So we do this in our language a lot. So somebody may say, I'm depressed today. I am depressed. I know it sounds subtle, but you've, you've equated yourself with that depression. You've identified with it. I am a <clears throat> Republican. I am a Democrat. I am a, uh, vaccinated person. I am an anti-vaccinated person or an unvaccinated person and I'm anti-vax. Uh, I'm happy. Uh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm a Bronco fan. See, we identify with all these things in the way that we speak. Now, one of the things that can be helpful is to change the way we speak and say a part of me feels depressed today. Uh, a part of me is excited for the game. Uh, a part of me, uh, really regrets what happened in the past. Uh, I enjoy watching football and uh, being a fan of the local team. There's ways to language those things without identifying with them. And the reason language is so important is because that is how our thoughts are molded, right? And so the idea is to not over-identify with all this stuff. Now, Eckhart Tolle in his book calls this the ego. The, the mind is the ego and the moment you, and mind and time are inseparable. And so the moment you disidentify with the mind is the moment that you break this cycle of being stuck in the mental preoccupation with the past or with the future and you bring your attention into the present moment, including being present to what's going on within you. In fact, that's, that's really the whole point. It's not just being present to the moment that's out here, but it's being present to the fact of what your mind is doing and watching the mind and observing the mind or listening to the thoughts or feeling the feelings so that you don't identify so much with the speaker in your head, the speaker meaning the self-talk, the chatter that's going on, you identify more with the listener. Because if you think about it, to be aware of your thoughts, there has to be awareness. To be aware of your feelings, there has to be awareness. So I become more aware of the entity within me having the experience, listening to the thoughts, Seeing the imaginations rise and fall, my imaginations, my worries about the future, my hopes about the future, seeing those things rise and fall, realizing that none of it's permanent, and I don't identify, therefore, with it. Now, the problem that I see and where it gets out of balance is that this goes so far to the nth degree, and the way some people teach it, that it almost becomes the goal to completely lose that stuff, to become completely present in the present moment. And that is a complete possibility for us in these bodies. And I'll explain why. Um, everything that's happening, every thought that you're having, every emotion that you're having, you can think of as a electrochemical activity that's going on, the neurons in your brain or within your uh, the signals and stuff that you're picking up within your body. Now, remember, you think in your head, the words, the thoughts, the images go on in the head, but every emotion is a feeling that happens in the body. You've never felt an emotion that didn't register somewhere in your body. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to feel it. So every emotion that you experience is actually an embodied experience, not a disembodied experience. So I think in my head, but I feel in my body. Now, Here's why it's impossible to 
be completely present to every moment and really to any moment because of the the way our brains work. So I'm going to talk a little bit about anxiety to explain this. You, you have, to, to really oversimplify this, you have, we have, um, what's called, what some people call the reptilian brain, which is the deeper parts of the brain, the more primitive parts of the brain. These, these are the parts of the brain that interact with the body, that keep us alive, that keep our heart re- uh, beating, that keep us breathing, that uh, dictate function to us. So the fact that I can move my hands, the fact that I can talk, all that kind of stuff. And then you have a layer of brain over that that they call the neural cortex or the new brain. And this is where the thinking brain happens. When we talk about being right brain or left brain, um, <clears throat> that's that's the neural cortex. Now, I want to talk about anxiety because this has to do with survival. Now, a lot of anxiety that we experience um, is uh, related to a part of the brain called the amygdala. And the word amygdala means almond. So it's literally the shape of an almond. So it's a very small neural network that is the alarm system that signals to you that it's time to go into a fight or flight. There's some kind of danger. And in order to stay alive and in order to survive, you have to go into a fight or flight. And so what that does is that interacts with your endocrine system, with your hormones, which releases the stuff in your body that causes you to go into this fight or flight or freeze response. So in other words, there's danger, there's a threat. So now I've got to get ready to fight or I've got to get ready to run. Or in some cases, I just freeze because I think almost like playing dead is going to be my best option in this situation for survival. This is where all stress comes from. Now, keep in mind, I said the amygdala is the shape of an almond. So this alarm system is not very sophisticated in the way that it thinks. Its sole purpose almost is just to keep you alive, recognize danger, and keep you alive. So what happens with anxiety, with panic attacks and things like that, is that we are getting uh, the alarm system. We're getting false alarms. These false alarms are going off constantly uh, because we don't live in sort of the caveman days where everything is a threat and we have to be ready to fight or we have to be ready to run from stuff. But our heart will increase. Our heart rate will increase. Our breathing will become rapid and shallow and we'll feel a shock. We literally feel like the shock in our system because we're preparing for something that is really a life or death situation. That's one level of anxiety. It's something that experts call uh, the bottom up uh, anxiety. So I, something triggers, my son jump scares me. That doesn't even register in the neural cortex. I don't even have time to think. Uh, it bypasses all that because time is of the essence. So instantly I'm in that fight or flight mode. And then when I realize after the fact what happened, I can calm myself down. Now, people who struggle from lots of stress or lots of anxiety, really their issue is an overactive amygdala. <laughs> and mindfulness or being present for the moment can really help with this because if I can just be aware of what's happening, I can be aware of what's happening in my body. I can observe the feeling. I can observe maybe what Tolle calls the pain body. Then that helps me practice presence and being present in the moment to perhaps realize okay, my present situation is not dangerous. It's not like what my ancestors faced and what my animal brain, reptilian brain is telling me is going on. But the neural cortex has a different way of functioning for survival. And I promise this is going to relate to now uh, and present moment awareness. My neural cortex, my new brain, is more of the thinking brain, the imagining brain. And so the way that it operates is that it reflects back on information that was stored, memories, the record of the past, even though the past isn't there, the record of the past is alive within me. And it's constantly referencing this record of the past and then using that as a template to navigate in the future. So the neural cortex learns. So, If I have a bad experience with something, 
in the past, let's say that um, when I was younger, I went to an amusement park and I rode some of these crazy rides and my amygdala got fired up and I got so scared and so freaked out, you know, spinning around, going upside down, all that stuff that I was scared for my life, literally in those moments. And then I don't go to an amusement park again for several years. And now maybe I'm an adult. Somebody wants to go to an amusement park and I say, I don't like amusement parks. I don't like the rides. Well, what's happening is, is that my brain is taking the template of the past and projecting it out onto the future with the assumption that my experience will be the same as an adult as it was when I was a child. Now, we're doing this all the time. Our brain, our neuroactivity is doing this all the time. It's a survival mechanism. So what happens is, but but then we, we live this out in that we have certain patterns, certain ways of understanding who we are, certain ways of knowing ourselves, and our brain is constantly working to access that record of the past and then project it to give us some sense of stability and certainty and uh, safety, really, primarily, in the future. And so then in the present moment, what we end up doing is we end up shaping our future because we act the same way, we do the same things, we hang around the same people, we have the same patterns. What we end up doing is we end up shaping our present moment. We begin to direct the future. So my point is you're shaping the present moment based on your references from the past. And then you're projecting that template onto the future. And for the sake of survival, we want to maintain these patterns. And this is why it becomes hard to change. This is why it becomes hard to change any aspect of our lives, break bad habits, um, experience something new, have something that we've never had before because our brain is constantly accessing that record of the past, projecting that record of the past onto the future. Now, you can't escape this at all, nor do you want to. And here's what I mean by this. In this present moment, right now, you are living or accessing. I mean, you're living in the present moment, but you are accessing, your brain is accessing information from your past, bringing it into the future. I mean, bringing it into the present moment and projecting it into the future. And you don't want that to stop. Here's why. Because if your brain did not do this, you would have to learn how to walk every morning when you got out of bed. See, that just the fact that you could walk, just the fact that you can sit here and listen to this, the fact that you understand English, the fact that you can follow what I'm saying, your brain, every time I say a word, your brain is automatically accessing something from your past and bringing it into the present. Uh, any activity that you do, your brain is accessing something from the past, bringing it into the present. If you play a musical instrument, Accessing your learnings from the past, bringing it into the present moment. If you're driving a car, accessing your learnings from the past, bringing it into the present moment. Having interactions socially with people, accessing information from the past, bringing it into the present moment. Logging onto Facebook, you get it. See, so you're doing this constantly. Now, you're also anticipating the future, and this is also important. Great example of this is reading. So our ability to read if you're reading a novel or reading a book, is as dependent on your ability to anticipate what's coming as it is accessing that record of the past so that you know what you're reading. You don't have to learn your ABCs all over again. And the way we know this, one of the ways to really prove this, is that in some languages, I think Spanish is this way, when a sentence starts, the punctuation is at the beginning of the sentence instead of at the end of the sentence. Now, I want you to think about this makes much more sense uh, as language because the punctuation lets you know the tone in which what you're about to read is being stated so that if you put a question mark, you know the person is asking a question. If you put the exclamation point, you know the person is speaking with emphasis. If you put the period, you know the person is just making a statement. All of that really should happen at the beginning when you're reading because it's putting the tone 
in the writer's voice, if you will, so you know ahead of time. In the English language, periods, exclamation points, question marks, things like that, are at the end, (laughs) which means you have to anticipate while you're reading what the person is actually saying. And so what cognitive specialists have told us then is that as part of the skill of reading is not only remembering what words mean, but also the ability to anticipate what's coming next. And your brain is actually kind of doing that. It's kind of doing this right now anyway. So my point in all this is it's impossible to escape completely the past and the future. Now, it may sound like I'm splitting hairs here, but really I'm not splitting hairs because your entire brain, your entire system is working this way. So could you achieve some point of samadhi, some point of no self, some point of no brain activity, uh, no thinking, where you're just a being of awareness in the present moment? Sure. Could you do that meditation? Sure. People say they've uh, reached that state. Um, I'm not going to argue with their experience. But the reality is you can't function. You can't drive a car. You can't have a conversation. You can't read a book. You can't do anything. You can't have social interactions. You can't do anything without this this mechanism of past referencing and future referencing. And all of that ties into the ego. So if you want to get rid of that, then really what you're trying to do is get rid of your life in this world, which, again, is why if you look at the East, where a lot of these practices and concepts come from, in order to achieve these things, you have to go up on a mountain someplace (laughs) and be with the community and be alone. And basically, you have to disconnect from any kind of life in this world, disconnect from any kind of life in this world, and then disconnect and detach internally from stuff to reach this point that you get off of what they believe the wheel of reincarnation so that you quit being born into this world of suffering. So that's the problem with it. If we try to make it the end goal, I'm just going to live in the present moment. I'm not going to allow my brain to do these things. Then you literally cannot function in the world. Uh, and I think by the fact that you have, you know, monasteries in the East and places where monks go to meditate and detach and achieve samadhi, they're acknowledging that if you're going to lose what they call the ego, you cannot function or have a life in this world. So that's not practical for us. It's not practical for Western spirituality at all. Um, so then we have to ask ourselves, are we going to set ourselves up for failure or are we going to um, work towards something that our brains are constantly working against instead of realizing that this process is actually working for me instead of working against me. Anybody that wants to use the law of attraction, anybody that wants to use uh, mind, power, magic, whatever, prayer, whatever, to shape a better future has to reference their past because you wouldn't know what better is if you didn't have something to compare it to, right? So that's kind of the where I think it gets a little bit out of balance. But now let's talk about the practical side of this and and how we can use this because we can bring our awareness more into the present moment than we do. We don't have to get lost in the illusion of the past or the delusion of the future. Remember that everything that happened in the past is over and all you and I have to go off of is a record of the past. And that record has been proven over and over again to not be accurate. Anybody that's ever journaled a lot, I know I experienced this. I had some um, really formative experiences in church when I was 18, 19 years old. And I journaled about those experiences. And then I would retell them. I would retell them when I was preaching. I would retell them when I was testifying to people about how, you know, God changed my life, all that kind of stuff. And years would go by, and I would keep telling these stories. Uh, and so I have a record of myself telling the story, saying a message that I gave. 
but also the record that I was the way I remember it at the moment, and then also going back and reading the journals. And so what was interesting was that I had a uh, encounter with a gentleman years later, 20, eh, probably 15 years later, who starred in one of my memories. And he remembered that moment as well. But he told the story very, very, very differently than I told the story. And so I decided one day I was going back through my journals and I came across this event. And wouldn't you know it, what I wrote in my journal right after it happened did not accurately reflect in detail the way I was telling the story. The point, the major point was the same, but man, there was a big difference in the way I was telling the narrative and the way I had written the narrative after it happened. And there was a huge difference between the way I was telling the story the way I'd written the event after it happened and the way this gentleman that was that we when we were discussing that memory was telling the story. So the truth is, the, the fact is, is that every time we tell a memory, we generally distort it. And when your mind stores the memory again, it stores it the way you distorted it. It doesn't store it the way that it happened. So we argue about stuff. We get worked up about stuff because of the record of the past in our memories and more and more research is coming out that's saying memory is not very accurate. It's one of the reasons that eyewitness testimony in trials can be so sketchy, right? It's why people get convicted. And then 20 years later, when DNA, when DNA evidence comes out, the DNA proves that they're completely innocent and that the eyewitness testimony was wrong. So first off, we have to realize that, that if we're dwelling on the past, that we're, if we're dwelling on our past memories, the things that have shaped us, we're dwelling in some level of distortion. Uh, There are distortions there. There are deletions there. There are generalizations there, all that stuff. Now, at the same time, like I said, with the future, if I'm dwelling on this fantasy of the future, there's so many things I can't control about the future and so many things I don't know. And yet that's the source of most of our worry, because remember, your neural cortex is going in the future, constantly projecting your past and expecting, shaping your expectations so that you're expecting people, you're expecting situations to manifest in a similar fashion to the way things have happened in the past. Now, please be aware, this is all going on. At the subconscious level, this is your subconscious mind at work. The same way you don't have to try to relearn. If, if your subconscious mind didn't work, you'd have to relearn your alphabet every day. You'd have to relearn how to walk every day. Uh, all this stuff that we take for granted, that's all operating in the subconscious mind. Well, the way we habitually relate to people uh, is all going on in the subconscious mind. And so then we can have like these anxiety attacks where we're just doing this projection and we're just sure that something is going to happen that's bad. Now, this is where intuition also becomes a little sketchy. Uh, now, I'm a firm believer in intuition and listening to your intuition and listening to your emotions, but just understand your intuition is also being shaped by the narratives that you're telling yourself from the past. And you can take energy from the past and unresolved situations from the past, bring them into your present moment and be feeling things and say to yourself, well, I know what this person's thinking because I can feel it. I can sense it. I can intuit it. Or I know what's going to happen because my intuition is telling me. Now, I'm not saying discount your intuition. I'm not saying that you're wrong necessarily in those situations. But what I am saying is hold it with a little bit of humility and realize that you you don't have the power to read minds. You don't have the power to foretell the future as accurately as you think you do, especially when it comes to major events or changes or things like that, or especially when it comes to other people. And so we need to be careful as intuitives that we don't project our intuitions unconsciously and unknowingly, project our unfinished business into a situation or into a relationship and call it intuition. Uh, now, again, we're all going to do these things. So rather than seeing like present moment awareness and presence and just living constantly in present moment awareness and constantly having presence, rather than seeing that as a way of life, 
the way I would prefer and the way that's been most helpful for me after 20 years of working with this stuff to understand this and to work with this is to understand that this mindfulness practice is a tool. It is a tool that I can use, a powerful, a very, very powerful tool that I can use when I want to, to help myself manage my emotions. Because remember I said those emotions are like waves. They're going to come and go to help me not project a future from the past that I don't want. Help me be more present and bring more presence and change the vibration in a uh, relational encounter. Relationships are based on anticipation and patterns. So one of the things that you can try is if you will break the pattern in a relationship, that person doesn't really know what to do because you violated what they were anticipating about the future. So I'll give you an example. I've intervened a few times in my life in situations that were volatile. Uh, being out in public and seeing two people getting ready to go at a, to go at it in a fight or, uh, seeing, um, an attack, uh, you know, like you see those videos on the subway where people are losing their shit over mask wearing or something. And, or, you know, I've even seen some where guys are like really going after these women and all these other guys are just sitting there holding on, you know, like nobody's doing anything. Nobody's intervening. I'm not that guy. Um, I, you know, I've intervened in situations like that in the past, but one of the things that's so powerful, if you go into that situation, oftentimes with the same intensity and force and energy that is already manifesting in that situation. So if you have a very tense, volatile situation, somebody that's really angry and you can stay out of your emotion, you can stay out of your violent responses. And basically if you can stay out of the fight, flight or freeze response in that moment, be present to that moment and bring your full presence to that person, it will immediately, almost every time I've done it anyway, it will shut those situations down because they don't know how to respond to presence because they're not used to that. They're in fight or flight. Everything is a uh, threat to them. They're angry. They're worked up. And when you bring a calm, compassionate, present moment, presence into that situation you change the vibration um th- this is something funny i mean if you have a coworker, someone that you're working with who you guys don't get along and there's constant strife and tension just that constant energetic tension try going into work and acting like you're totally excited to see that person like you're seeing your best friend just hey how are you doing? I hope you're having a good day. I, I, it's really great to see you, and, and I'm looking forward to uh, just spending time with you today, or however you want to do that. Th- their jaw will drop, at, but also they'll kind of be fumbling. They won't know exactly how to respond to you, <laughs> and you really can't change up some of those negative patterns by throwing them that kind of a, a curveball. Does, does that make sense? Um so people that are really good in a crisis are people that can maintain presence in a crisis. From what I understand, people who are very good in war, uh, good at killing people in war, are people who can maintain a presence in the midst of that. If you get emotionally hijacked, you get taken over by too much energy because of something that's happening or something that you're worrying about. I started talking about anxiety because with anxiety, this can be really helpful. You just detach and observe the emotion as you're having it. Now, here's the thing. If you can just observe the emotion and just be present with the emotion, nine times out of ten, that emotion is going to change. And if you can just from a place of curiosity, watch and observe inside yourself how that emotion comes, rises, Falls, you can observe the story that you're telling yourself about how you're a victim in this situation and the other person is the villain in this situation and you were just doing what anybody would do in that situation that was experiencing it the way you were experiencing it. You're telling yourself this victim villain story. That's what's going on in the head. You got this 
all this emotional energy fired up and you immediately dive into that, that's when we get ourselves sometimes outcomes that we don't want. Instead, if you can take, if you can practice just being present with that feeling, you will notice nine times out of ten that that feeling will change, that it's fluid, that it's not permanent. And that's the key here to understand that this situation is not permanent. This thought is not permanent. This emotion is not permanent. It is going to rise and fall and subside. And you can actually, just by practicing mindfulness, just by being present with that feeling and that emotion, you can feel it begin to rise, feel the energy up in here, but I'm just observing it. I'm watching my mind tell me all these crazy stories about victim villain stuff. And then eventually I'm going to watch it begin to recede. It's going to begin to calm down. I often say that your emotions are like children, right? The more you ignore them, <laughs> the more you draw your attention away from them, trying to deal with them, uh, the louder they get. Or if you as a parent, like having two small boys that are constantly fighting, if I buy into their stories and get all caught up in their drama, that's me identifying with that stuff. I'm also not helping in that moment either. So Again, just being able to be present with that stuff, just being able to observe that stuff, just being able to allow myself to feel and experience that, allow myself to hear the stories without buying into the stories and believing the stories. Uh, but just observing those things in those moments can be a really, really powerful tool that can help you to get out of these negative emotional loops observing yourself and realizing, recognizing how these patterns work, noticing your pattern. Sometimes talking to yourself about yourself in the third person can help you maintain this sort of objectivity and this sort of presence as you're going through your daily life. Oh, there goes Aaron again getting upset. There goes Aaron again getting worried about something he can't control. There goes Aaron again, telling him all kinds of crazy stuff, looking into his crystal ball, thinking that he knows how the future is going to happen and forgets that if his crystal ball was as good as he thought, he could have probably won the lottery or uh, uh, bet on games or what, make, make millions of dollars telling people what's going to happen in the future. See what I'm saying? Now, two keys to this that I'll give you and then I'll be done. Two keys to this. Number one, you got to watch for resistance. You got to watch for how you're putting up resistance in your life. I don't like this situation. I don't like this feeling. I don't like this person. I don't like this moment that I'm in. And so I'm putting up resistance against that moment. I'm putting up resistance against that emotion. I'm putting up resistance against that situation. I'm pushing back, fighting it. I can feel myself getting tense and, and full of resistance. That is not going to help you because you're, you're operating like, for example, if I don't like my present moment and I want to create a better future and I'm creating the better future because I am resisting this present moment, then I'm going to inject, watch this, the energy and vibration of resistance into everything I'm trying to imagine and create metaphysically for my future. And when I do that, when I put the seed of resistance in those thoughts and feelings, guess what? That resistance that's there, that energy of resistance that's there, is going to resist the future that I want. Like, like the energy that I'm injecting into it, it's like, it's like putting a hidden, um, explosive device inside that thing that I'm sending to the future that's going to cause it to blow up because it's got the energy of resistance. So because I'm resisting the present moment and I'm putting that energy into the future, I'm also resisting the future, which means I'm making it harder for that future to happen. I hope that makes sense. You may have to listen to that a couple of times to get it because um, it's, 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 it's a difficult concept. I mean, it's a simple concept, but it's, it's difficult to explain. Uh, you know, they, they, I've always heard it said, uh, Great teacher can take complex and make it simple. Sometimes I find myself taking the simple and making it complex. So, so letting go of resistance, learning how to let go of resistance and accept what is in front of me is really key without resistance. Now, how do I do this without resistance? I have to let go of judgment. I have to let go of judgment. I have to let go of judging this situation as bad 
judging this situation is unpleasant, judging that person is bad, judging that person is unpleasant. Um, even by saying I want a better future, I'm judging my current situation as there's something wrong with it. And so I need to try to get something better to come along. And so being aware of your subconscious judgments, being aware of your subconscious preferences and being willing to let those go or suspend those, you don't have to totally let them go, but suspend those in the moment to just be present and to allow that energy of resistance to, to flow out of you so that you come at a place of acceptance or at least at the place of curiosity. Like if you put yourself in a state of curiosity, you automatically take yourself out of a fight or flight state and you also automatically let go of resistance because we've never resisted something we were curious about. We explore it, we dive into it. And so by coming at this from a place of, I want to be curious about this. I'm curious, what's what's happening? How, how does this work? How does this work inside me? How does this work with this other person? Putting myself in that place of curiosity allows for acceptance. And when I allow for acceptance and I let go of resistance, now I'm letting life come to me. Now I can make a conscious choice that I want to experience something else without unnecessarily judging and resisting the experience that I'm having. So then I can think about how I want to create my future, and I'm doing it with this loving acceptance. So guess what? I'm putting the energy of loving and and acceptance and the vibration of loving acceptance into, like a seed, into that thought, into that imagination, into that projection of the future, and I'm fertilizing it with acceptance. I'm fertilizing it with ease. I'm fertilizing it with, um, yeah, all that stuff. So guess what? That's going to energize it to allow it to come into my life because what I'm, the message I'm sending is I'm accepting this. I'm open to this. I'm not resisting this. I'm not doing this from a negative place of judgment. Same thing with fear. Like if you're wanting finances, but you're wanting finances because you're afraid you're not going to have any, you're injecting fear into those thoughts and feelings and prayers. You're not injecting faith into those thoughts and feelings and prayers. So monitoring your feeling in your body and managing this stuff is super important part of, of our lives if we want to live better. Um, in other words, I, I realized that I am responsible for the changes that are going to happen in my life. I'm responsible for the experiences that I'm going to have. Nobody else is responsible for it. I take myself completely out of that victim mode. And then I realize I'm accountable to my future self. This is so important. I'm accountable to my future self. Like one of the knocks that I've heard on uh, when I start talking about shadow work and living in the twilight, living in the blending between the dark side of you and the light side of you, rather than just trying to be all light, um, was, you know, people will go to the extreme and they'll say, well, if you have, you know, Freud said within us we have an urge to procreate. And we have an urge to destroy. You're just going to let those things run wild. But see, when I'm when I'm responsible, when I'm conscious, when I'm awake, when I'm aware of all that stuff that's in me, when I'm not resisting it, I'm not judging it, then I also take an accountability to my future self. So sure, doing drugs in the moment, this perfect example, right? Doing drugs in the moment might sound good and might take me away from the pain that I don't want to experience in my present moment. But I'm also delivering to future Aaron an addiction problem that he's going to have to deal with and all the problems potentially that go with addiction systems. And so I'm conscious of that. I'm consciously aware that I'm always accountable to my future self for what I'm doing in the present moment. So then I can think about, I don't want to hand this off to future. See, it's important. It's important that we allow ourselves to think about the future, to think about the past, It's important that we're in the present moment. All these things are tools for us to help us to have the best experiences that we can in this life. And then the last thing I want to say is the realization, one of the most powerful realizations I think that we can come to, that we resist, is that nothing is permanent. Nothing about my experience is permanent. Therefore, nothing is the same as anything else. Anytime I say This experience is going to be just like, for the same as, my past experiences. 
lots of negative experiences with people in my past. And then I say, well, if I continue this path, it's just going to continue to be the same as. That may be true, but it won't be exactly the same as. Because nothing is permanent. And one of the reasons, one of the ways we create so much suffering for ourselves is we expect to have permanence in a universe that's constantly in flow and in flux. Or you could say it this way. We expect permanence in an impermanent world. So if we can just accept, that helps with acceptance too. Because if I'm in a situation that I'm really enjoying, I'm not going to get so drunk and high on that situation that I come down and crash so hard later when it's no longer happening. I can enjoy, I can allow myself to have the enjoyment of the experience without expecting it to always be like this. By the same token, if I'm going through a difficult time, if I'm going through some kind of anxiety or depression, I can realize this also is not permanent. This also will change. This also is in flow and in flux. And man, this can put you in such a place of peace and such a place of acceptance and such a place of just allowing life to unfold. Sometimes we're trying so hard to work the law of attraction or to work the laws of faith because we are so trying to control the flow of life and trying to control situations and people around us. And all of that control, again, is based on judgment. It's based on resistance. And, and, and if I'm trying to control all the factors out there subconsciously, I still believe that I am subject to those influences out there. But if I can realize that by controlling myself, by being aware of myself, by being consciously awake, by not getting so sucked up into a spiritual teaching, right, that I go down another, like, follow the Pied Piper down another path, but I look at some of these spiritual teachings and spiritual things, and I say, oh, here's a tool that I can add to my toolbox. Practicing the present moment, practicing the power of now, practicing mindfulness. This is a very powerful tool that I can put in my toolbox, but I'm not going to put myself into bondage to trying to live up to another system of religion that doesn't work. So I hope that's helpful for you. I went into a lot of stuff. Um, I'll, I'll look at the comments. Um, I'm going to be more active on social media. Um, I had some really bad problems with my spine earlier last summer in the fall, uh, and it was just taking forever to heal. I was in constant chronic pain, um, and so that was part of the reason I got off. Um, other reasons I got off, I we went into it in Freeology Friday. Um, but I'm really encouraged and I'm excited about the future. So I'm planning on being a little bit more active. I love the Facebook community and all of you. And so thanks for watching. Thanks for giving me your feedback. And uh, on that note, I hope you have a great day. And uh, who knows? Maybe the Broncos will win tonight. <laughs> God bless you.